It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. And here we go. What's up, Reds fans? Welcome in to the Locked On Reds podcast for this Tuesday. Hope this podcast finds you well. Don't know if you got the chance to see our friend Joel Luckup had an awesome list that he posted on Twitter of all of the best Reds, the best players in Reds history from each state in the United States. A lot of cool things on there, a lot of interesting player names. Obviously, it's kind of funny that there have never been any Reds from the state of Idaho or from the state of North Dakota. Maybe have to figure that one out here uh, in the coming years. But an interesting take from Joel, the best player from the state of Pennsylvania to play for the Reds, Bucky Walters, not Ken Griffey Jr. We'll get into all of that here. I'll, and I'll explain why I think I kind of agree with that in just a bit. We're talking about the 1940 regular season on today's episode. But before we jump into all of that, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on all the many podcasting platforms. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three F's and follow the show at Locked On Reds and save the Locked On Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-01. Five nine. So we're not we're we're gonna skip through the news today. No, not really much to talk about anyway. I mean, there was a real quick shout out. The Reds did launch their fund for game day workers, a million dollar fund from the team to help defray the loss of income from game day workers. So that's kind of cool. But that's really the only bit of news we have. We're gonna jump right in to the talk about nineteen. 19- 40. And as I kind of mentioned in yesterday's teaser, 1940 was a year following a Reds World Series loss. They got swept by Joe DiMaggio and the Yankees in 1939 after having made it to the Fall Classic for the first time since the 1919 Black Sox scandal. And there was an Air. There, were, there was a thought from the baseball world about this Reds franchise that their one and only World Series championship was not legitimate. Say what you will about looking back on history and the, the talent that the 1919 Reds had on their team. The stigma that surrounded the Reds back then was they couldn't win a legitimate contest, the White Sox had to throw the World Series for them to win. So 1940 entered a year that, yes, they had a good team. They didn't have any superstars when you look at it, 
We'll talk about at the end of the year some good news for the Reds as far as a singular award is concerned, but at the same token, you don't look back at the 1940 Reds outside of Ernie Lombardi, and then even with Johnny Bench coming years later, we kind of forget about Ernie Lombardi as well. Did a throwback episode on him a long time ago. I think it was last year that I did a throwback Thursday episode on him. If you want to look through the archives, go check that out. But he is the best catcher not named Johnny Bench in Reds history. That being said, he wasn't considered a guy. He wasn't considered superstar status back in the day. In fact, there is a legitimate argument from a team that us Reds fans aren't too big a fans of to begin with as to who should have been the National League MVP. But let's look at the first half of the season. Fun fact, the 1940 season opening day got started off with the only no-hitter. This was not a Reds game. This was Bob Feller for the Indians back in 1940 through the only no-hitter on opening day ever. There's never been another opening day no-hitter except for 1940 Bob Feller no-hit the Chicago White Sox. Fun fact there. A little uh you know, next time you actually go to a bar, you can have a bar bet sort of trivia thing. Great uh, little tidbit for you there. But when you look at the first half of 1940, we're going to break it down here. The Reds had the best record through the first 70 games. And in fact, they ended the entire regular season with the best record in Major League Baseball. But through the first 70 games, their records sit at 46 and 23. They actually had one tie, which is kind of funny. But best in the major leagues, they had a half game lead over the Brooklyn Dodgers. So if that tells you anything about the National League back then, hotly contested between the Reds and the Dodgers. And in fact, in the first half of that season, the Reds and the Dodgers split uh, through the first half six games apiece. They each won six against the other. Pretty good rivalry back then. During that first, the the entire year, really, the Reds pitching was its strength. And they had three guys at the top of the rotation. Sound familiar? Two of the guys, if, if you know your Reds history, two of the guys will sound very familiar. Bucky Walters and Paul Derringer. Both guys were absolute studs. But then there's this third guy. You don't hear a whole lot of talk about. He was phenomenal in 1940. Gene. Thompson. These three guys, when it came to the first half of the season, they had 52 combined starts, 317 and a third combined innings just in the first 70 games, and they had a 2.8 ERA, the three of them. Absolutely phenomenal hurlers, and the three of them combined for 40 complete games in those first 52 starts. That's right, 40. The bullpen was not called upon very much. In fact, I dare say they probably did not sponsor bullpen calls back then because there were so few and far between. But so many complete games back then for the Reds. And then on the offensive side of the ball, when it comes to the lineup, they averaged 4.7 runs per game in that first half. They had a team on base of 326. They knew how to hit. They knew how to pitch. And they were a very strong team. Both Ernie Lombardi and Paul Derringer started the 1940 All-Star Game for the National League. 
obviously Lombardi at catcher, and Derringer was the pitcher to begin the game for the senior circuit. Kind of like I mentioned, the 6-6 six and six record against Brooklyn was indicative of the two sides swapping first place quite a bit, each one taking different leads. Now, the Reds never fell further than three games behind the Dodgers at any point, and for the most part, they were the team that was being chased by Brooklyn, but both of them really fought hard for first place during the first half of the season. I'm going to tell you why in the second half the Reds pulled away here in just a moment. So after one half of the season, the Reds were on top by a half game over the Dodgers. They continued their dominance in the second half. First half of the season, they were 23 games over 500. And in the second half, they just picked right back up where they left off. They actually finished the year on a, on the whole with a 55-21 and 21 record at Crosley Field. Absolutely dominant in the city of Cincinnati. And they actually put together, uh, September they really pulled away. The cream rise to the top and the Reds pulled away in the National League race. They won 11 straight games from September 11th through September 21st. And the fun part about that was there were two doubleheaders in that in which they swept. There was a third doubleheader there on the 21st. They won the first part of the doubleheader, but then lost the second part to end the win streak at 11. But yeah, 11 games in a row in 10 days. Kind of funny. I, you, I doubt you would ever see that ever again, but they flipped the script on Brooklyn. One of the reasons they pulled away so much from the Dodgers, they ended up winning the division, or not the division, they ended up winning the National League because back then there were no divisions, which is another interesting thing. The idea back in 1940 was the regular season was everything. It was the champion of the National League against the champion of the American League. There were no divisions, there were no playoffs, because after the regular season was over, then it was the World Series. So the Reds, being the National League champion, went up against the Tigers, who were the American League champion. But they ended up winning the National League by 12 games over Brooklyn. And one of the biggest reasons for that was in the second half of the year, they flipped the script where they were 6-6 six and six against Brooklyn. During the second half, they were 8-2. and two. They just started dominating the Dodgers from Brooklyn. And then Frank McCormick finished up his MVP campaign. He was dominant in the first half, and he just kept on going from there. Finished the year with a 309 batting average, a 367 on base percentage. He had the most hits. But it's interesting because he won MVP, although there were a lot of fans from the wonderful city of St. Louis who believe their first baseman, who actually started the All-Star game over Frank McCormick, should have won the MVP. Johnny Mize, for the Cardinals back then, had an OPS of over 1,000, and he had 43 home runs, most in Major League Baseball, compared to McCormick's 19 
home runs. Now, McCormick did have 127 RBIs. He did his job to bring guys in. He still had plenty of extra base hits, but he just wasn't anywhere near the extra base hit machine, and especially the home run machine that Johnny Mize was. Here's the thing, though. Back then, as it is now, I mean, a couple of years ago, there wasn't this case to be made in the National League for MVP, but in most years, voters tend to skew toward the best player on the best teams. So that's what happened here. The Reds were in the World Series. The Cardinals actually finished in third in the National League that year. So writers back then for the Baseball Writers Association of America couldn't really justify voting for a guy on the third place team as the MVP. Fun fact, three Reds came in the top four in MVP voting that year. McCormick won, and then Johnny Mize came in second. Then Bucky Walters and Paul Derringer came third and fourth. If the Cy Young Award actually existed back then, Bucky Walters for sure would have won it. Dude was amazing on the mound for the Reds because, I mean, he led all of the major leagues in pitching. He didn't have the most innings. Bob Feller had the most innings. And in fact, according to Sporting News, Bob Feller was the player of the year. But Bucky Walters was 22 and 10. He started 36 games. 29 of those games were complete games for him. He threw 305 innings. That's right, 305 innings. This was just a different time for pitchers. I mean, think about it. Last season, Luis Castillo led the Reds in innings pitch. He threw 190 in 32 starts. He only made six less starts than Bucky Walters did back in 2000 or back in 2000 back in 1940 but in four more starts he threw over 100 more innings 115 to be exact just an absolutely phenomenal phenomenally different time period for pitchers this was back and really not to get too much into this whole debate of pitcher wins and their significance, but this is back during the time where you would actually take that into consideration. When he has 29 complete games, then we really are talking about the legitimacy of his win-loss record. So the win-loss record of 22-10 and 10 is actually worth mentioning, as opposed to nowadays, when who cares about pitcher win-loss records when most of them are only going five innings. Anyway. I digress, because I'm also forgetting to mention, and and this was probably the most significant storyline of the second half for the Reds, and that is Willard Hirschberger. Some folks who know Reds history will understand what I mean just by saying that name. But in August, the Reds and manager Bill McKechnie were facing a bit of an issue, because as I mentioned in the first half, uh, talking about Erling Lombardi, he was their big guy. He was the big gun in the middle of the order for the Reds, and he's facing a lot of health issues. A lot of minor nagging injuries were really catching up on him, and they had to have their backup catcher step up big time for him. Actually, Hershberger in 1939 was a pretty good hitter, and in 1940 continued to do pretty well at the plate in the reserve catcher role. He, he was a pretty solid backup for them. Well, in 
early August, they were playing the bottom of the league, the New York Giants, who had really struggled to that point in the year. So this was the kind of game that the Reds needed to stretch their lead in the National League. Well, they actually lost 5-4. This was on July 31st. They lost 5-4 as the Giants scored four runs in the ninth inning to win. Hershberger, who had, felt he was getting a lot of the blame for some defensive miscues that he had in that ninth inning, he was getting the blame for the loss, and he felt that had Lombardi actually been healthy and playing in that game, that the Reds would have won. Well, McKechnie realized that this was kind of an issue. He was seeing that Hershberger was kind of hitting rock bottom, and so he was like, yeah, yo, yo, like, chill out. It's okay. Just a game. We'll, we'll get him back next time, you know? So then, on August 2nd, they had a doubleheader with another team toward the bottom of the National League, the Boston Bees. And in the second game of that doubleheader, Hershberger caught. And the Reds again blew a late lead and lost the game 4-3 to in the 12th inning. And Willard Hershberger was 0-5 on that day. Not necessarily the kind of game where he had a ton of errors or anything like that, but he took the blame for the loss. And he even went so far as to tell manager Bill McKechnie how his father had committed suicide and that he was threatening to do the same thing himself. And of course, McKechnie again calmed him down. He met with him for an hour after the game. And then Hershberger went to his hotel room. The next day, though, they were supposed to have uh, another game and they had pregame activities. Hershberger did not show up. And Bill McKechnie knew there was something wrong. So he actually had Gabe Paul, the Reds publicist, talk to him. And he said he didn't have to suit up, but at least wanted him to come to the game. You know, be there with his teammates. But then the game started, and he wasn't there. So McKechnie sent Paul back up to Hershberger's hotel room. And unfortunately, they found out later that Hershberger had actually committed suicide. It kind of sucks because the Reds now are in history as the only team to have endured one of their players committing suicide during the season. I know that there's always a lot of talk about different players and their head cases and how they respond to different things and whether they get angry or they get crazy or they just shut down completely. Thankfully, there's never been a situation where someone has gone and done what Willard Hershberger had done. The Reds finished out the year they wore black bands on their uniforms to uh, commemorate Willard Hershberger. And actually, he wore number five, and they retired his jersey toward the end of the season all the way up until Johnny Bench ended up wearing number five when he came to the Reds. But just a, a sad story, and the Reds actually overcame that by adding their bullpen catcher to the roster for the World Series, and he kind of played a pivotal role because, like I mentioned, those nagging injuries for Ernie Lombardi did not go away, and there were a couple of games that the bullpen catcher 
whose name was Jimmy Wilson, and he just so happened he was 39 years old. He actually played a couple of very meaningful games in that series. And we'll get to all of that when we talk about the World Series, the Reds World Series run on Thursday. And it's kind of a tough part. I mean, that was toward the end of the year that Hirschberger committed suicide, so it's kind of a rough way to end this episode. I I understand that. And then also an interesting part, too, something that I just wanted to point out very quickly, a very prominent name in the history of Reds pitching, Johnny Vandermeer, was largely absent from the 1940 season because he had some control issues. He, he was not really able to locate his pitches. In fact, if you look back at his statistics from 1940, he had 7.7 walks per nine. He, he really couldn't quite rein it in. He had a couple of early season appearances in which he just had so many walks that they sent him down to the minor leagues, brought him back up later in the season, and he was effectively wild, but he was still quite wild. He, he did not have any starts where he kept the walks to a manageable number. It's kind of funny because you always hear Tom Brenneman talk about Luis Castillo. Boy, if he could just quell the walks or if he could, t- you know, keep his control and not walk so many people, he'd be like the best pitcher in baseball. This went even more so for Johnny Vandermeer back in 1940. That's why he wasn't a huge part of the Reds rotation back then, but they had an amazing rotation in Bucky Walters, Paul Derringer, and Gene Thompson, and Jim Turner a little bit. Jim Turner made some starts as well, not near as many as those three guys did, but he was also a very important pitcher for them throughout the year. We'll talk about the World Series on Thursday. Tomorrow, very special episode. I'm going to be talking to Dave Yiddy Armbruster. We're going to be looking at some memories that he has with Marty, with Joe, and I might even ask him how he got his nickname too. We're going to get to all of that tomorrow on the Lockdown Reds podcast. You're not going to want to miss it. The best way to not miss any episodes is to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you are currently listening to. Also, follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three Fs and follow the show at Lockdown Reds and save that Lockdown Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-0159. That's going to do it for this edition of the Lockdown Reds podcast. Now, tell your smart device to play the latest episode of Lockdown Major League Baseball. Thanks so much again for listening to the Lockdown Reds podcast. I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. 